Hello, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, April the 25th. We continue our study in the book of Hebrews, and today we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 18. I'm going to go ahead and read that in the ESV, Hebrews chapter 2, 5 through 18. The subtext here is the founder of salvation. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little a little while lower than the angels. You, you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting aside everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sacrifices, or excuse me, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will pray, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make appropriation for the sins of the world for he because for because he himself has suffered when tempted he is able to help those who are being tempted let me pray father may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be holy, pleasing, and acceptable in your sight. Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Hebrews is all about Christ. The introduction declares that Jesus is God's final word to man. There's nothing more to be said. There's nothing that can be added after what Jesus Christ has said and done. And so, therefore, it's, it's utterly foolish to ignore it, the writer says. Because, you see, we cannot exist without Jesus. It is basic dishonesty to pretend that we can. We are not independent of God, as we sometimes imagine that we are. We're not even independent of each other. We need one another, and we need God desperately every moment of life. Therefore, if Jesus is God, as this letter so clearly claims he is the inevitable one and it's foolish to ignore him so now we look at a section where christ in his humanity is set before us as our mediator before god you see when we are in trouble 
we crave, we need a mediator. So when we feel that God wants to say something to us, we look around for a mediator to stand in between. The ancient world looked for angels for this service. Angels were the demigods of the Roman and the Greek pantheon. But the writer of Hebrews will argue that angels will, will never do as mediators. The simple, or the reason is simple. You see, no angel has ever been a man. No angel has ever stood where we stand, but Jesus... The Son has. Just how fully he has become man, we're going to look at in this passage. And all the values of his life arises out of what we may call the identification of incarnation, God becoming man. So there's a really interesting pattern developed in Hebrews chapter 2, 5 through 18. Four times in this passage, we're led along the course of Jesus's earthly ministry, viewing it from four different, sort of four different points of view. And at the end of each of these, we come up against the cross. You see, God has planted the cross in this passage four different times to indicate that whatever value there may be in the life of our Lord Jesus, it is made available to us by means of his death. He came to live in order that he might die. And on the cross, he poured out his life in order that we may have it. So let's look at the first of four reasons of why Jesus became a man. We're going to look at chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with the glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And now in putting it and now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with the glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. This section declares that Jesus became a man in order to recapture our lost identity. You know, no angel could take Christ's place for God, had, had never given the right to govern the universe to angels. You know, God had never given the right to angels, but to men. And the writer substantiates that with a quotation from the eighth Psalm where David cries, what is man that you are mindful of him? He is out beneath the stars on some night, looking up to the, into the majesty of the heavens, feeling his own significance. And he asks, where is man's place in this universe? And by the spirit, he, he kind of answers his own questions or his own question, excuse me. You do not make man for a little while lower than the angels. You, you have crowned him with the glory and honor, putting all things under his feet. And the writer insists that when David says all things, he means all things, everything. Because then he adds, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. So here's man's intended destiny. And when I'm saying man, I mean mankind. That means men and women. Man referring to, to our humanity, if you will. So man's intended destiny. Here it is, his, his authorized dominion. Man was made to be king over all God's universe. 
And this passage includes far more than, than the earth. It envisions the created universe of God as far as man has been able, has ever been able to discover it. And, and all the eliminable reaches of space and whatever lies beyond that. All of this, all of this, according to scripture, is to be put under man's dominion. But man's authority was derived authority. You see, man himself was to be subject to the God who dwells in him. He was to be the means by which the invisible God would become visible to his creatures. He was to be the manifestation of God's own life, which, which lived in the royal residence, if you will, of this human spirit. As long as man was subject to the dominion of God within him, he would be able to exercise dominion over all the universe around. Only when man accepted dominion could he then exercise dominion. The writer further points out that, that man was made lower than the angels for a limited time to learn what the exercise of that dominion meant. He was given a limited domain, in other words, this earth, this tiny planet, whirling its way through the, the great galaxy to which we belong amid all the billions of galaxies of space. And then he was also given a limited physical body that, that within that limited area, man should learn the principles by which his dominion could be exercised throughout the universe. This limitation is described as being lower than the angels. But the passage goes on to describe man's present state of futility. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. There, there is the whole story of human history in a nutshell. How visibly true this is. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Man attempts to exercise his dominion, but he can no longer do it adequately. He has never forgotten the position God gave him because throughout the, the, the history of the race, there is a, this continual re, restatement of the dreams of man for dominion over the earth. That's why we cannot keep off the highest mountain. We, we have to get up there, though we, we have not lost a thing up there, we ha we, 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 and we know that. And we know that when we get there, we're only going to see what, what perhaps the bear saw, the eagle, whatever. Maybe it's just the other side of the mountain. But we have, we've got to get up there. We've got to go explore the depths of the sea. We have to get out into outer space. Why? Well, because it's there. You see, man consistently manifest this remarkable memory, a, a remnant recollection of what God told him to do. The trouble is that when he tries to accomplish this now, he creates a highly explosive and very dangerous situation for his ability to exercise dominion. You see, it's just no longer there. Things get out of balance. This is why we are confronted with an increasingly serious situation, Right? Just for example, when, when our attempt to control insects by pesticides and other poisons creates an imbalance that threatens, that threatens us with serious results, the history of man is one of continually precipitating a crisis by attempts to exercise dominion. Go back into recorded history to the earliest writings of men, the, the most ancient of history. And the amazing thing is that men were wrestling with the same moral problems then that we are wrestling with today. We have made incredible and wonderful advances in the technology application. 
of certain physical forces of life. I mean, obviously that cannot be denied. We hold in our hand the power that used to be held in entire floors of buildings in terms of computer application. But we have made absolutely zero progress since the dawn of man when it comes to moral relationships. Somewhere, man has lost his relationship with God. And the fall of man is the only adequate explanation of this. Since then, the universe is stamped with futility. Everything that man does is a dead-end street. He is utterly unable to carry things through to a successful conclusion. Okay, even in our individual lives, this is true, right? How many of us have realized the dreams and all the ideals that we began with? Who can say, yeah, I've done all that I wanted to do. I've, I've been all that I wanted to be. Paul in Romans says it this way, the creation was subjected to futility. It's Romans 8.20. But, the writer says, we see Jesus This is man's one hope. With the eye of faith, we see Jesus clearly crowned and reigning over the universe. The man, Jesus, fulfilling man's lost destiny. In the last book of the Bible, there's a scene where John beholds the one seated on the throne of the universe. Well, 10,000 times 10,000s and thousands of angels are crying out in this unending, this undying worship before that throne. And the call goes out to find one who is able to open the little book with the seven seals, which is the title deed to earth. It's the title, the right to run the earth. And a search is made through the, through the length and through the breadth of human history for someone wise enough, strong enough, compassionate enough to open those seals but no one can be found. John says, I wept much that no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Revelation 5, 4. But the angel says, do not weep for the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered and he can open the seals. Revelation 5, 5. And when John turns to see this lion, to his amazement, he saw a lamb. A lamb with blood staining its neck, a lamb that had been slain. And, and as he watched the lamb stepped up to the, to the throne and took the little book and all of heaven broke into worship. For here at last was one found wise enough, strong enough, compassionate enough to solve the problems of man and to own the title deed of earth. This is what the writer sees here. We see Jesus who alone has broken through the barrier that keeps man from his heritage. What is that barrier? Have we ever analyzed that? What is it that keeps us from being what we want to be? What is it that keeps man from realizing his dreams of dominion? Well, it's put in one very grim word. And that word is death. Death in this passage, as in many other places in Scripture, does not simply mean a funeral, a memorial service. It includes more than the ending of life. Death basically means uselessness. It means waste. It means futility. Death, in that sense, it, 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 it pervades all of life. We can see the signs of it all along. What is death? It's 
Boredom is death, and, and barrenness is death, as well as frustration and depression of spirit, anxiety, worry, fear, despair, defeat, disease. All these are equivalent with death. The funeral, the memorial is just the final straw. The closing of that casket is, is that kind of ringing down of the curtain on a life of futility, of emptiness. The show's over. As Shakespeare put it, life's but a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. The argument of Hebrews is that life apart from Jesus Christ is simply that, nothing. At the end of our life, God may say, it is a most remarkable performance, but the trouble is you miss the point. It signifies nothing but Jesus. But Jesus fulfilled the qualifications to realize man's heritage. He became lower than the angels. He took on flesh and blood. He entered into the human race to become part of it. He experienced death, not only the death of a cross, but also that, that incipient death that marks the way of man through all of his days. So he tasted death for every man, Hebrews says. And in doing so, he took my place, your place, our place. He then makes it possible for those who throw in their lot with him to find that he has removed the thing that gives death its sting. We're going to see more of that in a moment, but for now it's enough to see that Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, man has, has one ray of hope left to realize the destiny that God provided for him. Christ has come to begin a new race of men. And that race includes himself and all those who are his. And to that race, the promise is that they shall enter into all the fullness that God ever intended man to have. Paul puts it in in Colossians and in Philip's translation like this. They are those to whom God has planned to give a vision of the full wonder and the splendor of his secret plan for the nations. And the secret is simply this. Christ in you, yes, Christ in you, bringing with him the hope of all the glorious things to come. So that is the first reason Christ became man, to recapture man's lost inheritance. And this agrees with the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of the great king. The second reason why Christ became man is to recover our lost unity. Hebrews 10 through 13, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source, and that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I'll sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. The earthly life of Jesus is referred to in one phrase here, perfect through suffering, which brings up some questions. Was he not perfect when he came? When Jesus was the baby in the manger, was he not perfect even then? When he was tempted in the desert and Satan tried to turn him uh, from the cross, was he not already perfect? When he was feeding 5,000 in, com- in that compassionate ministry to the hungry multitudes, was he not perfect? Why then does it say that he must be perfected by suffering? Well, there are two perfections involved. He was perfect in his person all along. The scripture makes this 
abundantly clear. Hear me clearly and loudly. He was perfect in his person all the while, all the time. But he was not yet perfect in his work. This is this is confusing. So listen to this. So some of the some of the younger folks out there, you, you may be perfect in health, perfect in body, strength, perfect in soundness of your humanity, but you're not yet perfect in this work that you are called to do. Suppose for a second Jesus Christ had come full grown into the world a week before he died. Suppose he had never been born a baby, grew up, grew up in, uh, into an adult life, but but he stepped into the earth a full grown man. Suppose he had uttered in one week's time the Sermon on the Mount, the upper room discourse, and all the teachings that we have from his mouth recorded in Scripture. Imagine that he came on Monday, and then on Friday they took him out and crucified him, hanging him on the cross, and that he died, just as it is recorded in the Scriptures, bearing the sins of the world. Would he still have been a perfect Savior? Well, certainly he would have been perfect as far as bearing our guilt is concerned. That required a sinless Savior, which, of course, he was and is. But he would not have been perfect as far as bearing our infirmities, our weaknesses is concerned. He would have, he would have been able to fit us for heaven someday, but, he, but never able to make us ready for the earth right now. But he was made perfect through his suffering, Scripture tells us. He does know. He does know every way, every way in which we are tempted and suffer. He was a man who was afraid. He was a man who was uncertain at times. He was a man who searched for fulfillment in his life. And if we deny him that, if we, if we say, no, that can't be, then we deny him his identification with us as a human being. Remember, he is fully God and he is fully man. These were the temptations he faced, the pressures that he, he, he withstood. Every fear is, is temptation. Every sense of uncertainty is temptation. And he was tempted like we are. Scripture is very clear of this. Of course, though, he never acted out of uncertainty. He never spoke out of fear because he knew a secret. The secret he came to teach us that man is intended to be lived in to be indwelt by God and to be continually dependent upon God within him to give him everything he needs for every situation. The moment that Jesus felt fear gripping his heart, immediately he leaned back upon that full flowing life of the indwelling father. And that fear was met by faith. The moment he felt uncertain, he did not know which way to turn. He rested back on the indwelling wisdom of God and was immediately given a word that was the right word for the situation. Because he fully entered into our fears and pressures, he is fully one with us. That is why it can be recorded here in Hebrews 2.11. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The writer then quotes from the Old Testament to illustrate this, showing that the attitude and the relationship he had is the same that we have, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So Christ has become so utterly one with us and we with him that all causes of division, well, they're removed all ground of, of enmity is, is taken away and all disagreement is answered. So this passage links up with the gospel of John, the gospel of one body where Jesus prays they may, that they may be one, Father, even as we are one, John 17, 22. 
So to, so to make a new holy undivided body is the second reason Jesus Christ became a man. The third reason is to release us from our present bondage. Verses 14 through 15, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Is the devil destroyed? Do, do you think he's quit working? If we mean by this eliminated, well, then obviously I think the answer has to be no. But the word destroy here does not mean eliminate. The word means to render impotent, to nullify, to render inoperative, inconsequential. That's the idea. The devil has not been eliminated, but the devil has been rendered impotent. Under certain conditions, if this, this is true, th- those conditions are available to all men, all of us in Jesus Christ. That is what he's saying. When we enter into the conditions that a holy God sets out through Jesus, we discover that what he says is true. There is a freeing from lifelong bondage. The devil does not have the power of death in the sense of determining who dies and when life shall end. Only God has that power. But the phrase, the power of death, means the grip of death, its fearsomeness, its terribly, its terrible quality. Bondage, therefore, is that of the, sign, the reign of sin, the flesh. This is what Paul means in Romans 8 when he says the mind of, the, of flesh is death. Death is the absence of life. Death is not something in itself. It is simply the absence of something. Death in all of its forms is absence of life. This is what boredom is. This is what distress is. This is what fear is. This is what anxiety is. These are forms of death because they are the they are absent. They are the absence of the life of the Lord Jesus. It is this death that Christ sets us free from. The fear of this death, death, excuse me, is perhaps the devil's whip, the writer says, by which he keeps us in slavery and in bondage all of our life. Non-Christians, of course, have no escape from this. But even Christians, because we don't always understand that kind of freedom that Christ brings, frequently we experience death. We, def- we experience defeat, waste, limitation, despair. How does Jesus deliver us from this? Well, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that, a cro- that, is that the cross reverses our values. In its light, we are able to strip away the Satan's lie and to act upon a totally different principle of life. That principle is this freedom is not having what I want and the, in doing what I want, it is doing what God wants. It is the person who gives up, who gains. It is the person who flings away their life and abandonment to God's wants who finally learns to live. It is the one who tries to keep their life who loses it. Is that not what Jesus said? The person who steps out on this principle will discover that for them, the devil is impotent. That person is set free to live the kind of life that God intended them to live. They may, they may not have some of the things others might have, for things do not produce happiness, but they have what God wants them to have. Life lived to the fullest degree possible. So that's the third reason that Jesus became a man is that's to release us from present bondage. The last reason is to restore us 
in times of failure. Verses 16 through 18, For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he, is, he, is, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make appropriation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Well, there is the cross again, expiation for the sins of the world. It, It comes at the end of a life in which the Lord Jesus is merciful and that faithful high priest. The cross here is seen in in its character as the basis for this daily cleaning and forgiveness for the people of God. This has in in view the ministry of 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is able to do this because during his life, during his life, he was merciful. That is compassionate and faithful. That gracious compassion is now made available to us in his death. Christ's present attitude is summed up for us in chapter 5, verse 2. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. If we come defending our sins, defiant, excusing ourselves, we can find no help at all. But if we come as David comes in the 51st Psalm, confessing, pouring it out, admiring everything, saying it is wrong, and casting it all on him, we find there's immediate flowing out of strength and healing and grace. If we know Jesus Christ, we can come directly to him at any time, any place, and find that his ministry, his life, his purpose is to bring us under the shadow of the Almighty. The writer of the letter is deeply concerned that Christians enter into this. And, and the question to us is, how much have we discovered this total ministry of Christ, of Jesus, in our own life? He became a man not only to recapture our lost identity, but also to heal the disagreements among us and to bring us into the unity of one life in him, to release us from daily lifelong bondage to the fear of losing out on life, and to bring us that sweet healing ministry which in time of failure, restores us to fellowship without condemnation. So from Hebrews 13, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen, and God bless.